Hello, and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. I am Mooncat, and with me is Ocho. Hello. Well, for anybody who hasn't heard this before, this is our, I suppose you would say, spin-off from the sitcom club. As in, we talk about everything except sitcoms on this podcast. But it's attached to the sitcom club podcast feed for your listening convenience. Now, last time we were talking about all manner of highfalutin stuff, weren't we? Because we were in the company of Jean-Luc Goddard, for example. He got mentioned. Now, we are returning to the world of screen. Well, in some ways, this is a return to official show number one, Children's Film Foundation. If I thought it could have sustained it, rather than this just being our Anything Goes freewheeling non-sitcom podcast, this would have been a podcast about British B-movies. I'm not sure either of us have it in us to sustain that for enough shows for it to be interesting. But it's something that's been rolling around in the back of my mind for a while. It's something I enjoyed with the Children's Film Foundation. Just that thing of watching films which are made by British people for British people, the country talking to itself in a way that doesn't entirely matter if the foreigners are listening. Though there is that spectre hanging over, I think it's fair to say, all three of these movies. Maybe we'll get some sales to America. That's the hope that's running through these movies. But because these are low-budget things, they can't really disguise themselves. And so it's as much the things that they unintentionally reveal as the things that they intentionally do that I find fascinating. And it had to be 50s as well. It's three movies from the 50s. Because by the 60s, it's cool to be British. So British people being British is an international prospect. I wanted to go back to just that time in the 50s when Second World War has been won, British culture hasn't been wiped out, there's a certain euphoria over that, and yet the money's run out, the empire is collapsing. Anyway, these are real cheapies. So, can you, in layman's terms, and by that I mean for the benefit of people like me, can you just encapsulate what a B-movie is. Are we talking about something that runs before the main feature, after the main feature, or instead of the main feature, but it's cheaper to get (laughs) into the cinema? What are we talking about? It depends what time you come in. These are from the days of just continuous running. So you buy your ticket and you go and sit down partway through the film. You know, that's where that line comes, this is where we came in. That was apparently something you said (laughs) at the cinema. But presumably they did publish start times, didn't they? Because... That's no way to see yes, film, but really. Th- that is the way people saw films. It was not unusual to go in. I think, I'm not entirely sure, but I think the reason trailers are called trailers is because you could attach them to the end of a reel. And people say, why are they called trailers? Because they're before the movie. It, they, they weren't. They were just anywhere. They were between the movies. It was a constant show. And that really, the first thing to strike a blow against that was Psycho. You're not allowed in the theatre after a certain point in the film. And then Bonnie Lake is Missing, Otto Preminger film, that was another one. You're not allowed in after a certain time because there's a twist. And I don't doubt it's not just down to two movies that that all changed. No, B-movies were the things that made it the double bill. It may have started in the 1920s, but certainly with the Depression, just to get people coming into the cinemas, give them a little bit more for their money. For your ticket, you'll see two films. But you don't see two blockbusters. One of them has to be lesser. Now, it might be a little bit lesser, or it might be real poverty raw stuff. And of course, in the UK, you had the Quarter Act, which resulted in the Quarter Quickies. There was a law that a certain number of films screened in British cinemas had to be made in Britain by British people, or there'd be fines. And this is because a lot of the cinemas were owned by American companies who only put their own product in. But the result is, is that quickies, they're done just to fulfill the law, not for any great care or attention. People did try to make prestige productions under the Quarter Act, but a lot of attention got focused on the pound of foot merchants. One pound per foot of film. That's what you got. Just shoot something that kind of hangs together as a film. Well, these got a very bad reputation, and in the last 15, 20 years, there's been a bit of a re-examination, saying, well, 
yes, there was some dreadful stuff, but if you throw money at the problem, here's some money, do things, you end up with a big talent base. Now, the quarter act got replaced by, eventually, the ED levy. So the films we're talking about today are not quarter quickies. The quarter quickie is really a phenomenon of the 20s and 30s. But they're linked to it because there's been money thrown at the British film industry. So studio space is plentiful and the talent base is plentiful. I mean, people like David Lean came out of this. There are the resources to make cheap British films. And cheap British films are needed for the lower half of double bills. There's a little bit of subsidy going, like we're talking about the E.D. Levy, which hadn't become law. It started in 1950 and became a law in 1957. I did read up about it and my head started to hurt after a while. So I had to go back to that topic. Okay, now, what is the order of events? If you went into the cinema at the beginning of the entire sort of showreel, are you going to get like a cartoon? I don't know. I've been trying to find this out. It's for a different reason. But as far as I can tell, you will get a newsreel, probably a cartoon, maybe a short, maybe a newsreel, a cartoon, and a short, trailers, adverts. This is this is the place where you can see adverts before independent television. After independent television, the cinema becomes the place you can see adverts in colour. And then you will get a B film and an A film. What about those things? I know this is a little bit later. But what about those things like Telly Savalas visits Birmingham? Yes, well, you probably are thinking, when I said quarter quickies, there was a Radio 4 documentary presented by Laurie Taylor called Telly Savalas and the Quarter Quickies. There is a relation between those travel logs and those kinds of shorts and the subsidy money that's going around and the amount of British products that has to be shown on screen. It kind of dwindles to the travel log. I don't remember seeing those, but those were apparently going until the late 70s. The Life of Brian came with a specially made fake travelogue. I think we've got one actually on Sky Arts just now, which is Pete Murray in Nottingham, and I think it's 1982. I don't remember these. I only remember trailers, adverts, and main feature. But anyway, the re- so the reason we're looking at these B pictures is because they're British and they're cheap, and cheapness can sometimes result in a nice distinctive flavour. I have to be honest and say that I'm not a frequent cinema goer and I don't even frequently watch films and television. Last one I went to see was Guardians of the Galaxy, but that was just more as a sort of group outing rather than being particularly interested to see the film. The thing that sort of puts me off a lot of modern cinema is it's not just that it's so expensive to buy your ticket, but also because so much money spent on the films that in a way they don't have a lot of charm. Do you know what I mean? And I find that these three films that we're looking at today, I find them all quite sort of charming in that way, in a way that perhaps if they were a big budget and could have done much, much more and had more elaborate sets or, in the case of one of the films, you know, special effects and things like that, I I don't think that they would necessarily have benefited from it. Or they certainly would have lost a lot of their quaint charm as a result. I remember somebody complaining about blockbusters, big summer blockbusters, big winter blockbusters, all year round blockbusters, that nowadays the more expensive Hollywood movies are made to a distinct formula. There's a screenwriting book that's very popular. And once you recognize the pattern, pretty much any big movie is now open to you. You know how it's going to start, how it's going to proceed, how it's going to end. And the pacing, even the pacing is identical. I think this was something we said in the Children's Film Foundation one. B-movie pacing. Open credits. Opening credits have ended. Right. Story. Smack. Come on. Yes. Times are wasted. Damn right. And actually, that was one thing that struck me about the Naked Gun films, that there was no padding in those. They were like sort of 75 minutes, 80 minutes long. Whereas I suspect nowadays a modern day version of that and it seems ridiculous to say a modern-day version of Naked Gun. Bloody thing's only 20-odd years old. But a modern-day version of that, it's got to be at least two hours now, isn't it? Probably pushing two and a half. I don't know. I guess that would be your whatever movie franchises. Whatever movie. You know, like scary movie, pirate movie, this movie, that movie, teen movie. What's the name of the guys who make those things? But I know, Yes, I know the ones you mean, yeah. So which one would you like to start with? Because it's about time we talked about specifics. 
Well, I know which one you want to finish with. So I'm going to say let's start with a nice little crime drama called The Blue Parrot. Now, you see, I said earlier Britain talking to Britain, but maybe not. This is one of those with the obvious, hey, America notices we have put an American character in our film. That's something that happens a lot. You tend to get American actors, certainly American actors who've had a slight decline in success in America and have come over to the UK because their politics are too red or their nose is too red. <laughs> this is where you end up with things like Brian Don Levy playing Quatermass for two films. However, in this film, the American character is played by an Irish actor called Dermot Walsh. That's probably been done on the thinking, oh, well, the Irish accent, it's quite easy to finesse into an American accent. I think Dermot Walsh had maybe been to some elocution teacher to get rid of his Irishness, because the American accent is not happening. But it's something I've seen on TV, and it's certainly something I've seen in films, is if it's a crime drama and it's about Scotland Yard, have an American character so that the British police can explain British police procedures for the American audience, who are clearly going to be flocking to this thing. Well, there is one point, isn't there, where he's told, we don't carry guns. Police don't carry guns in Britain, they lead to shootings. Because he just pulls out his gun. So you're just fresh off the boat, mate. You've been carrying that around all this time. So I really enjoyed Blue Pad. Yeah, I but did you really enjoy it three... because of the familiar faces? Partly, but I also I was intrigued by the, the story. I wanted to see where it was going to go. Out of the three films we watched, this is my favourite one. I really enjoyed them all. I had to but... keep rewatching this because I kept losing the thread. I didn't have that problem, to be honest. Yes, I was spotting faces because that's always good fun to do in British films and what have you, but I liked the little storyline. I liked the overall sort of arc and the plot and what have you. And yeah, yeah, I was engaged with it. I wanted to see where it was going to go. And I also liked the fact that it wasn't overly complicated. It wasn't convoluted. We've got straightforward modern investigation. And it's not like we've got bodies dropping everywhere and what have you. It's just, okay, this is a crime and we've got to solve it. I'm going to get to the bottom of this case. And that's what happens over the course of about, what is it, an hour and five minutes? It's not particularly long. I'm looking at the IMDb for the cast list, and in the right-hand column, user lists. So these are the lists that this film appears on. European film noir. Film noir I've seen. I love those personalised <laughs> lists. Film noir from the beginning. British noir. I would not call this a film noir. It's too well lit. It wants to be a film noir. Is that really what the definition of film noir is? Is just how poor the lighting is on purpose? There's definitely an element. The cinematography is definitely an element of film noir. Yes, this does have an involved plot, if not a convoluted plot. And I know it's set in Soho, but this Soho doesn't appear exactly too seedy. Everybody's terribly posh and nice. Even the bad guys are terribly posh and nice. And the Blue Parrot itself, it Looks like it could be a milk bar. There's nothing that really says this is nightlife in Soho. Women's bodies and men's dreams are for sale in Soho. <laughs> this is Soho and you can have a drink at up to five past eleven at night. That's not the line, but that's just kind of the sense. <laughs> no, it, it is. I know what you mean. I just saw a few days ago, I saw an episode of Doctor in the House from 1969 where Barry Evans and Robin Nedwell, to earn a few extra quid, get a job at a Soho casino. And Bernard Breslau is a big heavy who's there at the door. And that actually looks like a more authentic... Yeah, the Blue Parrot didn't even have a bouncer. Of a Soho drinking den. Well, we didn't see the outside too much, did we? So, And it was right across from a greasy spoon. We saw enough of the outside to not see any bouncer. I think they had... Well, maybe the guy who took coats in was also the bouncer. So the plot is, there's a guy who is called Rox, and he deals in gaudy and tasteless jewellery. Some of it may not be of legal provenance. And he's found dead. Who killed Rox? And the suspicion falls on the nervous, sweaty waiter, Taps. Or is it the owner of the blue parrot, Henry Carson? Or is it somebody else? There's a landlady. There's a landlady. There's that guy called Stevens lurking around. The plot's more involved than we make it sound, actually. To me, it just sounds like 
Who killed rocks? Who cares? Now we need to put names to these characters because people. I people was saving that this. up because. Okay, all right, but if Go people on. haven't seen this film, then they can't quite visualize this yet. I think you probably didn't recognize one of the most famous people in this. I'm sitting up straight now. Well, you're not a fan of Doctor McWho, are you? Well, this is true, but I'm still relatively au fait with actors who've been in Doctor Who as long as they've been in all things as well. Okay, then. Oh, well, th- there we go. This is the only other thing I've seen Jacqueline Hill in. Who? Well, she was one of the first Doctor Who companions. She was one of the original trio. And I'm almost surprised that we had to obtain this through a recording of a channel called Movies for Men. It's not on DVD. Can I just point out for the benefit of anybody who doesn't have satellite, Movies for Men is just a name of a film channel that shows old films. It's not that kind of thing. I don't know why it's called Movies for Men, because it's nothing CD like that. It's not that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's more sort of ITV4 sort of men than, you know. Anyway, this would be interesting to a lot of people because it's Jacqueline Hill 10 years before Doctor Who. So investigating the murder of rocks with Dermot Walsh's Bob Herrick, the American policeman who is investigating British police techniques is Superintendent Chester, played by Ballard Barkley, with his lovely, smoky, fruity voice. He sounds like a barbecued strawberry. I don't know about you, but I sort of picked up on this very early on in the film, and from this point onwards, I couldn't shake it off at all. Obviously, just a couple of weeks ago since the death of Patrick McNee was announced, and Ballard Barkley really, really reminded me of Patrick McNee in this. Really? really That's interesting. To, to the point where I was start of thinking, I wonder what the Avengers would have been like with Ballard Barkley. <laughs> now that I've said that to you, because it sounds like you didn't think that yourself. No, I so didn't. if you if you have a maybe a third viewing of it and pick up on that and have a look at it, then I'm sure before too long you'll start noticing similar mannerisms and what have you. Yes, I suppose it's the charming courtly Englishman who's in control and somehow above the violent world he's investigating. But this is, again, a very British setup, And this is why the film noir thing clashes. Because the policemen in it are not hard-bitten. They're not dragged down. It's not a case of they've seen some terrible things. They're solid figures. Richard Pearson is the assistant Quincy. I don't know if he's a sergeant or an inspector. He's somewhere below superintendent. This much we do know. I want to challenge an assumption that you've just made there. You say they haven't seen terrible things. How do we know that they are not simply practitioners of the stiff upper lip what i mean is they're not people who go i've seen some terrible things obviously they've seen some terrible things but it does not come out in their personalities it's just not i don't know if it's if it's not the british way or if it's not the way the british liked to see themselves reflected back what it means is you have a supposedly noir crime drama where the forces of law and order act with absolute certainty and calm and all is right with the world once they find out who killed rocks. Do you know what wouldn't have been good? If instead of coming across like Patrick McNee, if Ballard Barkley had come across like Norman Eshley's character in The Sweeney. Well, he's sort of full of bravado in one that moment. Phone box. Well, exactly. Well, yeah, because he's, he's full Pearson of bravado and, and then suddenly. <laughs> Third time this week. <laughs> We should just explain that Norman Ashley's character in the Sweeney, he is sort of being portrayed as, as a rather cowardly figure. It isn't that he's just got some sort of... Well, it's not a know. cowardly figure. It's just that he gets in way over his head. He sees police work as a career and he just kind of chooses the flying squad as or just something to get out of the way. It looks good on the CV and he doesn't realise quite how rough the cases can get. Yeah, but no, he he does come across cowardly when he goes after... Arthur English, for example, and roughs him up. So, uh, yeah, so like Ashley's character is sort of, he's full of piss and vinegar when he doesn't perceive as a threat, but when there's a threat, then he shits himself. What as well? (laughs) I only saw the one stain in that episode. Now, the thing I'm not saying is that British cinema couldn't do noir, because it could, and it did. I can think of two, both of which have William Hartnell. I mean, there's Brighton Rock, that's the obvious one, which has the clash between a British seaside town and gangsters, I think uses that as a nice source of tension. And there's a film called Appointment with Crime with, ah, William Hartnell has these dead lizard eyes. Might be one worth coming back to. Maybe we'll do 1940s 
British noir. Yeah, let's do a proper British noir one sometime. But there's more focus on the criminals in that. This is the focus on the police procedural. And the police seem to never miss a step. They don't ever seem to get frustrated. It's It has even less moral uncertainty than something like Dragnet. And we haven't even got through naming all the familiar faces. You just mentioned Dragnet there. They're showing Dragnet at the moment on one of those you know, satellite channels that shows all the like public domain stuff and what have you. Now, that's a kind of show that's missing from television today. One where there's no overblown nonsense and it doesn't require lots of sort of moody shots or explanatory dialogue and so on. I mean, the episode that I saw most recently was with Lee Marvin. So the two of them, Dragnet and his pal, they suspect that Lee Marvin is up to no good and they interrogate him and... They just find out in the course of the conversation that they were right. But there's no big plot swivel or anything like that. There's no big sudden reveal. It's just, you know, they were on to the right line of questioning and eventually he confessed. That was it. But like Jack Webb, his stoicism is kind of hard. There's a sort of relentlessness about him. In Los Angeles, there's a certain greater seedy glamour. What I like about certain British films is they have a quality of unglamour, and sometimes you can juxtapose that with the glamour of the form, and sometimes you can't. And when you can't, you end up with the blue parrot. You know how, like a lot of crime films and what have you, when you've got two cops, you've got good cop, bad cop. In the case of Ballard Barclay and Richard Pearson, <laughs> which one's which? <laughs> Because well, I'm really low Richard to Richard Pearson has such a baby face. I guess he'd have to be good cop by default. Ballard Buckley might frown and you might feel a bit bad. <laughs> if I was a wrong one and I got hauled in for questioning and Ballard Barkley was questioning me, I think that I just sort of know from the outset that I'm going to tell him. I might sort of string him along a bit and proclaim my innocence or whatever it is but he's just so damn nice and gentlemanly that eventually I'm going to say look you know you've been very patient with me I, I don't want to put you out and give you extra work to do so here's where the bodies are buried. Now Victor Lucas as Rox Owen I can't tell you anything about Victor Lucas was not a familiar name to me but we mentioned him so often it seemed remiss not to mention who plays Rox whereas when we get to a much smaller part plot-wise, Taps Campelli, <laughs> played by Edwin Richfield. And for once, he's keeping his dialogue clean. So there you go. He said thugs. <laughs> he said thugs. This feels Sorry, almost you're... like a bit of a waste of Edwin Richfield. I know he's a young-ish man at this point, but if he wanted to make a British noir, he'd be a good guy to get because he has a sneer. We don't really see his sneer. But, oh, when he sneers, there's so much venom and contempt leaks from his face. In fact, he should have been playing Henry Carson, but he wasn't. Henry Carson, owner of the Blue Parrot, clearly neck deep in Soho slime. John LeMessurier, with dark hair. He seems to be lacking a certain conviction. <laughs> well, I think that he's principally concerned with just his day-to-day -day business. He's running that club. He's had this problem with this rocks fella. He's... He's not dwelling on it, and you know he's just getting on with counting the takings and making sure that they're stocked up okay on the expensive whiskey that everybody asks for. He's not melodramatic. He's just getting about his business. So I don't have a great deal to say about the Blue Parrot, without, without dropping big spoilers. Just that there's a clash between a world of hot jewels, cold-blooded murder sleazy drinking places, and pawnbrokers who wear brown coats like Arkwright. You know, you can't just wander into pawnbrokers and say, you know, I've got this, no evidence of ownership or anything like that, no certificate of authenticity, receipt. can't get away with that kind of thing. Not even in the 1950s. And you certainly can't get away with it in cash converters now. Actually, maybe you could, I don't know. Oh, there's one nice bit of topical business, because this is a film from 1953. And somebody says, can I turn King's Evidence? I think you'll find it's Queen's Evidence. Yes, no, that was good. Yeah, I like that. It's difficult to be in that kind of mindset now, but you'd be so used to saying King's Evidence, wouldn't you? Because you'd have lived with it all your life. So the idea that you've suddenly got to switch. I mean, eventually, Kavanaugh QC is going to look like a real relic. I think it'll be more amusing that when 
if they ever remake Kavanagh QC and call it Kavanagh KC, then every time I see the name, it's going to make me think of KC and the Sunshine Band. Or maybe they'll call it Kavanagh KC, just to <laughs> move it around. <laughs> so, not a massive amount to say about the Blue Parrots on my part, apart from the fact that the Alfresco Cafe has been very poorly named. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, you're mentioning names there. You haven't mentioned the name of the chap who is... Is he shacking up with a landlady in Roxy's old... Well, he puts the move on the landlady later on for plot reasons. What was his deal, Stevens? He just seemed to wander around going, nah, don't talk about things. Mm, I know stuff. Played by Ferdy Main. Well, we have a reason to talk about Ferdy Main, don't we? We do, because he was... Inspector Dreyfus's psychiatrist in Revenge of the Pink Panther, and also turns up at Grace Brothers' store on occasion as well. I was mainly thinking about him being in Marilyn, because there's a bit more for me to say here, because we're saying the Spectre of America is cast over... You think it's fair to say cast over all these films? America is a young, confident, rich nation in the 50s. It's a place to look to. Remember what we're saying we keep coming back to, British Happy Days, British Fonzie would possibly be a bit of a sad figure because he's pretending to be something he really isn't. Well, isn't your man in Marilyn? He is sort of British. Yeah, way ahead of me. Because <laughs> that's the thing about Marilyn. She wants to be an American. She wants to run things on American lines, but she works in a little petrol station, not even a gas station, that seems to be off a B road in the middle of nowhere. I've got a bone to pick with this film. I enjoyed it, but I've got one central issue with it immediately. That gas station, that's got both SO and BP signs in it. Yeah, it's a free house. Yeah, but you don't see that kind of thing. You either see an SO petrol station or a BP petrol station. You don't see both of them together. Well, it gives you an idea of how far out this place must be from anywhere near civilization that he can get away with that kind of Michigas. It's like seeing a restaurant, and by restaurant I mean like, you know, Burger King or something like that, that serves both Coke and Pepsi next to each other. You just don't <laughs> get that kind of thing. It doesn't happen. That did annoy me, but I was able to overlook it. Because there's a couple of different tensions here. So there's the American thing, which is, this time, part of the plot. Marilyn wants to be American. She's called Marilyn, which is definitely meant to make us think of blonde bombshells. Other than Diana Dawes. The tension that's unspoken here is class tension. I know I'm doing it again. You can't talk about old British stuff without talking about class. Oh, no, well, not just old, not Yeah, but just I'm not one British of those people stuff, who yeah. turns up at parties and tries to put everybody in the back foot by bringing socio-economic and socio-political <laughs> dimensions to a packet of peanuts. <laughs> this is clearly meant to be a working class film about working class people and everybody talks like they've at least had some encounter with the rank charm school. Leslie Dwyer, God love him, is the nearest thing you get to a proper working class character in this. There's the desire for social betterment. I don't know. Can you say that he's got like the desire for social betterment within the British class system and Marilyn wants to go even further than that? Right. I don't want to be... I don't wanna you want to quote clear. the line? You're going to quote that line? No, 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 no. I'll, I'll leave that to yourself. But no, I, I don't want to be crude, okay? But Marilyn... Can we put names? First of all, who's playing Marilyn? Sandra Dawn. And Leslie Dwyer. No, what's his character's name? George Saunders. You'd think I'd actually seen this film, wouldn't you? I have. <laughs> but, okay, right. It's hard to see Leslie Dwyer in something and not think of him just as Leslie Dwyer. He's in a Doctor Who, a John Pertie one, and he basically plays space Leslie Dwyer. <laughs> he talks Polari at Doctor Who. He rocks the jib, Toby. I've got to ask the question, because... I'm sure that I'm not the only person who's watched this film and thought this. How the bloody hell did George end up marrying Marilyn? Can I have permission to go highbrow again? Please do. I did want Jaffa Cakes to be kind of BBC Two to the sitcom club's BBC One. You mean BBC Two as in 1964, not nowadays? There's a series of plays, I think, by Frank Vedekind. I don't know if there's two or three. One of them's called Earth Spirit, and one of them's called Pandora's Box, one of which was adapted into a very, very, very famous silent film starring Louise Brooks and directed by a man whose name I knew until five seconds ago. You've got Google, don't make me Google it. Anyway, 
He was interested in themes of sexual hate. And the central character of Pandora's box, Lulu, she warps things around her because of everybody's desire for her. She's warped herself by desire and the people who desire her get bent out of shape. Everybody wants her. Is it George Willem Pabst? Is that it? Pabst. Thank you. Again, G.W. Pabst and F.W. Murnau mixed up. No, Pabst. Thank you. Who doesn't? And Bernd Desbrot. (laughs) And Hassi Kaiser, the uh, German Hartley Hare. What's German for let's pretend? I haven't got that far in my lessons. I'm only 23% (laughs) fluent right now. The computer tells me so. So, people desire Lulu and it destroys them. It destroys her. It destroys happiness. And the faint sense is that any desire around Lulu is exploitative and in some ways hateful. And when you have Louise Brooks and G.W. Pabst and all that wonderful post-expressionist lighting and the sleaze and freedom of Weimar Germany, that's when you get a film like Pandora's Box. And when you don't have any of that, you end up with a film like Marilyn. I'm saying there's a bit of sleazy exploitation involved because at one point George says about sending Marilyn's father two pounds a week. He somehow got to know Marilyn's father. It's probably the same age. Paying for the father's nasty habits. I'll take her off your hands. I'll look after her. There's something there that indicates just the fact that he's sending the money. It brings to mind all the worst instincts of human sexuality. Male sexuality. Leslie Dwyer's sexuality. Come on. When was the last time you heard those three words together? <laughs> I'm not saying anything bad about Leslie Dwyer, but the kind of parts he often plays. Marilyn has clearly gone along with it to a certain point because he's worked his fingers to the bone and given her, and if this was ever a cult film, this was ever one of those things that got shown at midnight movies. You just know that everybody in the cinema will be quoting along with this. If this turned into like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or The Room. Gas fires in every room, electric lights. <laughs> <laughs> so Marilyn's head is turned when Tom played by Maxwell Reed, turns up. You may disagree with this statement. I'm going to say that people who are not familiar with Maxwell Reed think Fonzie played by Doc Bogart. (laughs) You've made him sound a bit more interesting than he really is. He's not got much about him, has he? No, no, he hasn't. But he has a leather jacket, which at one point we see him wearing with no shirt or vest. That's just blatant. I know. This must have been an X film. And she has some sort of maid called Rosie, played by Vida Hope. Now, there's a thing. I've said sometimes before, you know, the lack of the production code. There were codes, there were standards in the UK. There were things that she simply couldn't get away with, but they seem to have fallen on different lines from the US. And I think there's things that turn up in British films which are then exported to the US, it just becomes a little extra thing. They would have been cut out at the script stage, probably. Rosie's interest in Marilyn is not entirely that of a concerned servant, is it? Well, basically, everybody wants Marilyn, and they end up ruining their lives because of it. I think the only person you can say who comes out of this without having his life completely bent out of shape by Marilyn is Kenneth Connor, and that's because he doesn't have any lines. (laughs) So the whole thing is is that Marilyn wants to turn the little sort of side building of the petrol station into an American bar. And thanks to the untimely passing of her husband... Well, it's manslaughter, isn't it? I felt we could get away with this and the Blue Parrot because it's not really a crime drama. It's not an investigation. There's no police procedural. It's about what causes the crime to happen and some of the fallout, but it's really only a plot point in other everybody else's desires. I know we're dancing around the specifics because, yeah, that's probably given a bit too much away. But I have to be honest and say that because Leslie Dwyer's character is such a bastard in this, that I was sort of hoping that the point at which they realise that he's subject to involuntary immobilisation, to quote, not an aircraft news, I was just hoping that everybody would just settle down and everything would be wonderful from that point onwards. And everything's happy ever after. And the moral of the story is that sometimes crime does pay after all. And there you go. What? Did you like Marilyn? 
No, I didn't she like Marilyn, but I disliked, I disliked but him But again, more. we have that thing that she's already been messed up. I'm sure if this film had run a little longer, we would have found out some horrible things about her past that would have explained without justifying her actions. Well, I wonder if there's a prequel in this. You know, there's a, a wide sargasso sea to its Jane Eyre that would <laughs> tell you everything about why Marilyn is the way she is. And then Leslie Dwyer arriving and coming to this two pounds a week arrangement with her father, then that's that's like the conclusion of the story. With her sort of like rubbing her hands together in the cold and goes, come with me and I'll give you a gas fire in every room and electric light. And an indoor toilet? Bloody hell, come on, dear. Be, be, be reasonable. That's what I wanted. I wanted it was all to be, all oh, the Wicked Witch is dead. And there you go, everything's fine now. Uh, the film would have ended rather prematurely. It would have turned into cheers, wouldn't it? Everybody comes to Maryland's yes. and drinks their American yeah. cocktails. She has a jukebox, doesn't she? When we see that petrol station, it looks like it's in the middle of one of those places where when the sun goes down, the sky goes black. You ever been? You've been to somewhere like oh, you didn't grow up somewhere like that. Well, no, I know what you mean, yeah, because there's no there's no street lights around, so you can see the stars in the sky at night. Yeah, well, I was about thirty when I first went somewhere like that. Being a city boy, it's like my God, I never realised how black night could be. Where is the sodium glow of the street lights? What's wrong here? And yet, when she builds her American bar, which just to me just looks like a money pit, people turn up. Well, they turn up on the first night, but not afterwards. Have you noticed how, like, after that opening night, then business massively drops off, and then any time you it's see the place It's not plot point, that, though, is it? It's more a case of, right, we've established. Yeah, but, I mean, there's things going on in the evening, but not the dead of night later on. There's no customers in there. Bloody place is empty. I mean, yeah, I know that it, the fundamental plot of the film is not, the takings have dropped off. Maybe we should model a place on, like, one of those Soho you know, yes, joints, definitely. Like she should have got John LeMessurier in. Damn right. Uh, talked about transfer fees for Edwin Richfield. <laughs> hey, we never mentioned in Blue Parrot uh, Dermot's drumming. He plays like somebody who has never sat down in front of a drum kit before. And speaking of which, of course, we have our link to the Blue Parrot. Ferdy Mayne as Nicky Everton turns up. And he's a step up from Tom. Tom understands Marilyn's desire for an American-style bar, but the furthest he can imagine running away to is London. Whereas Nicky Everton apparently has contacts in South America. Well, the thing is that that also gives us a little peek into Marilyn's psyche because she wanted an upgrade from Leslie Dwyer and she got it in Dirk Fonzie. And then suddenly this chap comes in and it's like, oh, now she's got an upgrade on him. But she also says about him... I'm sure there's better people than him out there yes! as well. Yeah. So she's never going to be happy. No matter who she's with, she's always going to be wanting to get to the next level until she's you know, married into royalty or something like that somewhere. And she messes Rosie around. You can come with me to South America, Rosie. Oh, that won't be convenient. No, you can't. And that's it. Mess with Rosie and it all falls apart. Because Rosie knows as well. She knows too much. But no, what I liked about this is this almost kind of made my point for me that... A British Fonzie. And I'm going to say that more Marilyn than Tom. Tom's just a man who owns a leather jacket. I don't think he entirely buys in to American culture. But for Marilyn, it's all she wants. She wants to get away from rationing and austerity and knowing your place. But it still falls apart because everybody's got a lovely accent except for Leslie Dwyer. This is a bad habit. Reverse engineering the plots of a film so that eventually there was no film left. I'm quite guilty of this. So she likes American things. So why doesn't she just go to America then? Just tell Leslie Dwyer where to go. You need money for that. Yeah, but you need money and... But do you? That's the thing, because you keep on hearing stories, and I'm sure that a lot of them are puffed up and embellished and what have you. But you keep on hearing stories about how people set sail for America and arrived with just the shirt on their back and what have you and then they became millionaires through hard work and effort and the like and the crap so I mean were they really do that? doing that by the 1950s though maybe in much earlier times when America wanted a population the 1950s is when people start going to Australia she might have stood a chance of going to Canada I mean you get a bit of that feeling from when she meets up with Ferdy Main's character 
and he talks about South America, and you kind of get the feeling that she's thinking, well, she's getting there by stages. So whereabouts in America does she want to be? New York? Oxnard. <laughs> I just like saying Oxnard. I've never been to it. I've been past it. <laughs> she wants to visit the UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> no, I mean, what do you reckon? New York or Hollywood? Which one do you think she'd prefer? She probably thinks they're the same place. <laughs> well, they're both like streets. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, I like Marilyn more than the Blue Parrot. I, I don't think you do. No, I did prefer the Blue Parrot. Yes, I mean, yes, I like Marilyn. The Marilyn's and... more of a noir because it's more about desire and you can't see quite as much either and it's got Kenneth Connor. That's why, yeah, okay, yeah, Kenneth Connor. Uh, granted, and it's more but... morally compromised. You don't have Ballard Barkley and Richard Pearson lighting his pipe breezing around everybody in this is morally grey but that's sort of why I like Blue Parrot because there is a sense that particularly with drama today and what have you, everybody's morally compromised, you know, there are no clean cut figures, there's no good versus evil, nothing like that so seeing something along those lines is actually quite refreshing. Now the fraud of our little selection <laughs> Another morally grey Shadowy crime drama. Hi. <laughs> I like to do things on the rule of three. And I needed to pick something. And I needed to think of something that was low budget. And also, I will confess to being heavily influenced by Matthew Sweet's documentary, Truly Medley Cheaply, on BBC4 many years ago. And I wanted to pick something that wasn't in that. Blue Parrot wasn't featured in it. Marilyn was featured in it. And there were a few other things that occurred to me. I thought, no, it's in that documentary, and I don't want this to be too much of a derivative podcast. I have to pick something that's cheap, 1950s, British, has qualities we can talk about, and it led me to Mother Riley Meets the Vampire. Or as our copy calls it, My Son the Vampire. One last little twist of the American knife. That whole thing of Britain's desire to be seen as Greece to America's Rome. It was re-released in 1963 with a theme tune by Alan Sherman. And reportedly footage, there was no footage of Alan Sherman in our version, but supposedly it's a preamble with Alan Sherman and a sexy model. Hang on a minute, didn't we not find another version of this on YouTube that had a different title? That's Vampire Over London, which was the original American release title. It was released in 1952-ish in the US as Vampire Over London, original British release, Mother Riley Meets the Vampire. Prospect of a re-release, circa 1963, and they wanted to call it Carry On Vampire. <laughs> Anglo Amalgamated found out, squashed that, and so... There's actually a tie-in single. My Son the Vampire was released as a single, and actually says on the label from the film My Son the Vampire. Now, can I just say, and I realise that this is potentially damaging my already flaky credibility, but I quite like the theme music. That's fair enough. Didn't match, though, did it? It didn't match, but if the theme music to I'm Alright Jack stands, then so can this. Do we explain Old Mother Riley? What is there to explain about Old Mother Riley? Arthur Lucan used to dress up as an old Irish washerwoman and do an act with his wife, who played his daughter, and they were very, very successful. It's part of that whole area of British comedy of men dressing up as women that I know Americans find a bit weird. Because there's two different styles, really. There's men dressing up as women and looking and acting like women and occasionally letting it drop. Danny LaRue, who's always insistent that the mask should keep dropping. And then you have the other side of it. It's really the two ways of doing pantomime dames, which is the man who dresses up as the woman and makes absolutely no concession to passing himself off as feminine in any way, shape or form. American once asked me to explain the appeal of the pantomime dame, and I said, really, it's what if your mum started acting like your dad? <laughs> My dad actually did a pantomime dame in a sort of amateur local parish production of something and didn't even shave off his beard. Bill Oddie, I know, did a pantomime dame thing and didn't shave off his beard. So Arthur Lucan, as Old Mother Riley, is part of that tradition. Scrappy, violent, crazy bloke pretending to be a maternal figure. By the time Mother Riley meets the vampire gets made, he's broken up with Kitty McShane because they really kind of hated each other after a while. There's an Alan Pay to play called On Your Way Riley uh, with Brian Murphy, 
as Arthur Luke and, and Maureen Lippman as Kitty McShane. And it's really all about how much they hated each other. Kitty McShane actually kept going on with a different old mother, Riley. That is outrageous. Yeah. And I've forgotten the name of the guy who did it. it just, I know his initials were RR. And he kept going into the 80s, apparently, his old mother, Riley. So quite how I managed to miss him, I don't know. Remember what I said about nearest and dearest? We said a lot of things about nearest and dearest. But also that thing of it being slightly Victorian. There's parts of this movie that really look like they were made in 1870. <laughs> it's so weirdly cheap and by the seat of its pants that it starts to get a bit dreamlike. It's probably an overused and abused term, dreamlike, but ge- genuinely, there's bits where things seem to be edited in out of left field. And wonderful little jokeoids that don't really work if you think about them. So we, when we first meet old Mother Riley, we'll get to the vampire in a bit, the rent collector is harassing her. And she says, the rent, the one thing they can't export and won't deport. What does that mean? <laughs> when you say jokeoids that don't really work, you mean the kind of gags that Ted Rogers would come out with on 3 I'm thinking of Arthur Atkinson from The Fast Show. I can't remember where I read it, where somebody... It was, it was a bit like the smashy and nicey case. Somebody saying to Paul Whitehouse, oh, you really managed to nail how horrible those things are. I was like, no, this is just light mockery of things that I actually quite like. The point of Arthur Atkinson was not comedy was dreadful in the 30s and 40s. It was just comedy ages badly or differently. And something that is hilarious in one era just becomes a stream of nonsense in another. He was not trying to take anybody down. and. There's quite a bit of that in Old Mother Riley. How much time do we have left? I'm quite happy to spend the rest of the podcast just talking about the musical number. <laughs> yes, that was good fun. So the rent collector is remonstrating with Old Mother Riley. And we even get a fantastic bit where a line has been edited out and edited into a later place and they've still left part of it in. <laughs> you're a bl- Well, you're a parasite. And then later on we get that you're a bloodsucker, you out vamp the vampire fantastically weird delivery old mother riley breaks into i hold up my finger and i say tweet tweet hush hush now now come come as featured in the goodies snow white too right the musical number's coming standard thing when the musical number's coming you get a little orchestral flourish leading up to it and usually then the vocals come in and in this you get the orchestral flourish leading up to it and the vocals come in and the orchestra's gone and it sounds like a piano demo you can actually hear little bits of the orchestra bleeding through, but something's gone funny in the recording of it. And you have a line from the rent collector that sounds like it's coming from a microphone that's been sealed into a safe that's been driven into the next county. <laughs> Some people throw a fit when the rent is due. Some people do a flit. You do six months too. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this again. You definitely are going to have to watch it again because then we get a little bit of dancing and we haven't mentioned that Hattie Jakes is one of the women in the shop. Now, the thing is, I, I noticed that Hattie Jakes was embracing the dance element a little bit more than Dandy Nichols because Dandy Nichols seemed a bit more hesitant whereas Hattie Jakes was... She was in there dancing to time. But the orchestra starts up again for the dance and then vanishes again for the next verse. And I kind of like that. It just gives that nice feel that this film is way, way older than it looks. So, in the early 50s, Bella Lugosi had come to Britain to appear in a stage production, a stage tour of Dracula. And the touring schedule was just too much for him. It's in the late 60s. Don't know if he'd kicked his drug habit by then. It was just too much for him. So, the tour has to be cancelled. And he doesn't have enough money to get home and shoot all that footage for Ed Wood. So somebody hears of this and he gets drafted into <laughs> Mother Riley Meets the Vampire. I'd love to know more about the scripting of this because you can kind of see different layers. remember reading a review of the movie Batman Returns where it says you can kind of tell when they've turned a page and the script pages have changed colour. Pink pages, pink pages, blue pages. This is a different rewrite of the script. Pink pages written by Graham Garden, blue pages written by Bill Hardy. <laughs> Because it's about a mad scientist who builds a robot, but he's also a vampire who drinks blood, and he needs the map to a uranium mine. He kidnaps a girl that we don't see for most of the time. He kidnaps a girl because he wants the map to the uranium mine, and she's taking it to the British Foreign Office, and yet he's also kidnapping young women to drink their blood, and he kidnaps 
by accident old mother riley and he decides he wants to drink her blood even though she's not a young woman and he's already kidnapped a young woman and what no i have to admit that this was part of the reason why this is the film that i least enjoyed out of the three but the musical number the musical number is great but there should be much more of that there should have been at least half a dozen musical numbers and there wasn't okay the interplay between dora bryan and richard waters for example that interested me. I want to know a bit more about is, that. Is this your second favourite cheap British film involving Richard Waters and a robot? If we can find a third one, we can have a festival. Let me just think, were there any robots in Confessions of a Window Cleaner? No, there weren't. Therefore, yes, it is. As far as the plot, as it was, was concerned, it just wasn't holding my attention because I sort of had this idea that, that the plot was as strong as the plot in a Free Stooges shot. But the weird thing is, is it's not like it's a thin plot. Right. Mad scientist builds a robot. The robot goes out and kidnaps old Mother Riley and she causes havoc at the mad scientist's house. That would be normal. I would understand that. I get the feeling that it is a script called Old Mother Riley versus the Mad Scientist. And then somehow it's like, hey, we got Bella Lugosi, but he's famous for playing vampires. Right, put in some vampire stuff. <laughs> and... The uranium mine stuff... Right, Mooncat, are you sitting down? Yes. Hold on to something, because I'm about to say something that does cause convulsions of terror and despair in a certain section of the population. Atoll K. Oh. Yeah. It reminded me of Atoll K. For those who want an explanation, it's the last Laurel and Hardy film, and they're not well. They don't look well, and the money's not there. And that's all about uranium, isn't it? I've never actually finished the film. And it's public domain, so you can see it pretty much anywhere. That's actually one of the worst elements about it. It's not just that it's so bloody awful, but also because it's public domain, it's much, much easier to come across than any of Lauren Hardy's best work, which, of course, is like 95% of it. If you go to Poundland or any of those places or the works or somewhere like that, you're guaranteed you're going to find this sitting on a shelf, probably matched up with a few silence with either Stan Laurel or Oliver Hardy, but not together. And yeah, no, it, it is unremittingly grim and if it ever pops up on your TV, don't watch it for God's sake. I would certainly not say that Old Mother Riley meets a vampire or whatever the hell we're calling it right now. I wouldn't say it's as bad as that okay, because that yeah, that really is but the the uranium plot sense. reminds us. Like, did somebody actually see Atoll K and think that's worth ripping off? Sometimes I say that I don't like just recapping plots, but I think we're going to have to recap the plot to give an idea. So, a young woman gets off a ship with a map to uranium mine. On the ship, she has been having a romance with a sailor. She is kidnapped, and the sailor is kidnapped by Bella Lugosi, a man who believes himself to be a vampire but isn't, because for some reason we need plausible deniability, but isn't mad scientist who has built a robot and has had it built in a secret factory in Ireland and is having it sent under the name Dr. Riley so that nobody knows it's him. People are aware that young women are being kidnapped by somebody called the vampire, so I guess he's disposing of the bodies because they know that he drinks human blood. This also results in a weird little jokeoid where Mother Riley hears that he drinks blood and she goes, What a thirst! Delivers it like it's a big laugh line. Meanwhile, after being remonstrated with by the landlord, rent collector, whatever he is, capitalist, running lackey doggy thingy, Mother Riley gets a telegram and finds that her uncle has died and she is going to inherit what's left of his estate. We haven't mentioned the stupid little boy who keeps running around and causing havoc. And with good reason. And it's being sent over. So what happens is, because of some card-playing sailors, because apparently we needed to get like five people for a scene that could have been done with one person, shipping labels get switched, Mother Riley ends up with the robot, which runs on uranium, and the vampire is planning on building a whole army of uranium-powered robots, which is why he needs a map to a uranium mine. And instead of getting the robot shipped over, the vampire gets a bed warmer and a banjo. That scene, Bella Lugosi was really going for it. My robot, my beautiful robot. <laughs> he is so despairing <laughs> about not getting his robot and getting a banjo and a bed warmer instead. 
Which I suppose, you know, you could mix them up and end up putting hot coals in your banjo and trying to play a bed warmer. You'd be embarrassed, wouldn't you? Well, hang on a minute. If you're playing banjo in your bed, is there going to be anybody else there to see it? I don't know. No, what I mean is, is that you embarrass yourself at a party trying to play anti-skinner's chicken dinners and then you go to bed to find a blazing banjo and you ride it down. This sounds like it could be the plot of Them Next Door from Mr. Mollipop Loves Mrs. Mole. So, the robot is activated by remote control. A remote control which, if it has its polarity reversed, can make traffic go backwards. That's never explained, and also can make a sleepwalking woman walk backwards. The robot kidnaps Mother Riley, takes it to the vampire, who takes a shine to Mother Riley, employs her as... A cleaning lady, but fills her up with nearly raw liver and steak and lots of stuff with blood in it because he's obviously going to drink Mother Riley's blood. The kidnapped girl has been taken to a different place because the police are suspicious and the henchmen don't want to be seen taking the kidnapped girl to the vampire's hideout. It's almost like they didn't have enough filming days with the girl but except you see her wrapped up in the mummy's bandages which is the cover story for with hilarious consequences <laughs> see I, I maintain that this has got the plot of a 20 minute free stitches film over the course of an hour and a quarter that sounds terribly convoluted for a 20 minute i, I would have th- i thought three stooges films had much more basic plots like turn up at a mad scientist's house and he's mad and then they smack each other roll credits there was one Free Stooges film, I think it's from 1946, with Shemp, and the plot principally involves some sort of chemical mixture which is going to reverse the ageing process. plot ends after 14 minutes, and the last six minutes is totally unrelated to what's <laughs> gone before. And yet, they have an hour and a quarter in which to tell their story, but they quite clearly run out of time. <laughs> and there's a bit of business yes there's some running around with Dora Bryan Richard Wattis is a policeman with a weirdly old fashioned helmet yes you see the bizarre little knob on that thing and the chin strap after a while the robot doesn't really come into it much does it it's just eating raw liver and going oh I'm an old woman <laughs> what you need to know is the vampire eventually finds out where the map is kept is going to go and get the map and kill the girl and killed Old Mother Riley. It doesn't work out. The sailor rescues the girl and Old Mother Riley, I suppose, rescues both of them. Okay, sorry, there's one really piece of nice tight plotting. Bill Shine is the drunken man who lets the robot drive his car. He's then at the police station the following day having a drink, which he spills all over Old Mother Riley. That's why the police don't believe her. Chekhov's one gun in the middle of all these <laughs> bent knives. So, for some reason, Mother Riley decides to go after the vampire. The police catch him. People die on screen. Do you see one of the henchmen just clutches chest because there's a shootout? No, I didn't spot that. Yeah, one of the henchmen, the guy with the beard. And the police close in and tell him to drop because he's run out of ammunition. The shootout's over. You've got you now, Von Hoosen, because that's the vampire's name. I finally remembered. And old Mother Riley has been chasing in a car and then on a bicycle and then on a motorbike. And ends up going straight past the vampire, up onto the ship, and over the side of the ship. And somebody throws a life-saving rubber ring, and it has This Is The End written on it. And she sticks her head out and goes, This Is The End! And that's it, there's not even end credits! (laughs) There's a bit of music that goes, Boom! (laughs) And she's incredibly relaxed, considering that she's on the chase of the vampire, and doesn't know... At this point, while she's flailing around with a rubber ring, she doesn't actually know that the police have caught up with Lugosi. She's quite okay with it all, isn't she? It's like, you know, I'm clocking off now. Six o'clock. That's me done. It just feels like, right, we've bought this much film. It's a story about the XTC album Skylarking that Todd Rundgren bought all the tape he needed before the session started. Because <laughs> he was so confident he would make this thing economically. And it feels like we've got this much story left to tell in this much film. Just about reckon we can do it if we cut out all the epilogue, post-amble, what happened next. The, the whole Up until this point, the whole film has screamed padding. Everything has suggested that they were under running by about 40 minutes in a film that's only an hour and a quarter long. 
So you've got all these constant little deviation subplots and so on and so on. All this silly business that's unnecessary. And then it's like, shit, I've only got three minutes left. I like it! Look, I've seen The Dark Knight, and that suffers from ending fatigue. You keep thinking, all oh, right, okay, I can see where it's going. And no, 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 okay, fine. Okay, and we're winding up, and we're, oh, God, no, there's another plot. Oh, my God, they've introduced another villain. Oh, my. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Now, if they just had Batman get in the bat pod, go after the Joker, miss, fall into a canal or something, <laughs> stick out his head through a rubber ring, this is the end. Much better. <laughs> That'd have done me. More movies should end <laughs> with the rubber rings and no end credits. Boom. So you don't watch movies, you say? Not all that often, I have to say. Do you regret this experience? No, I don't, actually. I really enjoyed all three of these. Even the last one. I mean, actually, I did. I did enjoy all three of these, and I want to see more of this kind of thing. Well, next time we do some British movies, then, I think we're going to do some British rock and roll. Probably plowing a similar furrow. 1950s Britain looks at America. But I think there'll be fun things to say about it. As is the nature of the things, we're not entirely sure what we're going to be talking about next time. On Jaffa Cakes with Proust, we have ideas. There's a television series I want to look at. There's a topic I want to talk about. And we've also added British rock and roll movies to the list. So we will see you, all being well, next month. But until then, this this is the end. end. Boom.